0: Hello, friends. Welcome back to the Kaderna Podcast. I'm Brian Kaderna. This is an episode I truly believe everyone needs to listen to, as it's a global matter that affects all of us and is unfolding right before our eyes. This episode is being aired on November 3rd, 2023, roughly one month since the Palestinian Islamist militant group Hamas conducted their surprise attack on Israel on October 7th. Currently, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken is in Israel as they continue their ground assault on Hamas and have surrounded Gaza City. Later this month, President Joe Biden is set to meet with President Xi Jinping in China to discuss the issue. So obviously, this comes at a great time that I get to sit down and interview Elaine Dazensky. Elaine is the Senior Director and Head of the Center on Economic and Financial Power at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies or FDD. If you're not familiar with the FDD, they're a Washington-based research institute that was founded shortly after the 9-11 terrorist attacks. Their focus is foreign policy and national security. Their experts, which come from the top ranks of government, intelligence, military, and the private sector, have guided the Bush, Obama, Trump, and Biden administrations. Elaine brings over two decades of leadership in public, private, and international organizations and is a globally recognized expert and thought leader on geopolitical risk, supply chain security, anti-corruption, and national security. She previously served as Senior Director at the World Economic Forum from 2010 to 2015, after which she launched her company, Luma Risk LLC, a risk advisory practice. In 2017 she served as senior fellow at the Jackson Institute for Global Affairs at Yale University and was a lecturer of business ethics. From 2020 to 2021, she served on the newly formed Chairman's Council on China Competition at the Export-Import Bank of the United States. She has held both political and career positions with the US Department of Homeland Security and senior roles at Interpol, Crossmatch Technologies, and Siemens Corporation. I'll put a link in the show note to Elaine's bio and some of her latest research if you'd like to learn more. So in today's episode, Elaine and I will be discussing those U.S.-China relations and their Belt and Road Initiative, or BRI. And then we'll move on to talk about Israel-Hamas and what's unfolding there. And we dive into terrorist financing. How exactly do these organizations get their money and their resources, often in some of the poorest spots of the world? So we just scratched the surface on some of these very complex geopolitical issues. But over the next hour, we'll bring everyone up to speed on what's unfolding and how to contextualize it all. So without further ado, here is Elaine Dozenski.
1: Is going to require work and time and sweat and toil.
2: If money wasn't an issue, what would I be doing? Don't worry about it, you'll figure it out. Change is the only constant. The Podcast.
0: Elaine, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Brian. Great to be here. Appreciate the invite.
0: Yeah, and I, I don't think this could be any more timely with what's going on in the world. It just seems like we're always dealing with a, a bit of chaos at any given point in time. I mean, if we could just get kind of that 10,000-foot view, you know, as this is airing here, end of October, early November 2023, you know, so much going on over in the Middle East. It seems like Ukraine and Russia has almost been put on a back burner of sorts. I think people, the public are almost getting punch drunk at this point with just so many current events grabbing headlines. Um, in your profession, does it feel like it's always kind of like this? There's always something bubbling or are we in a bit of a crazy time here?
1: Well, yeah, it's a great question and a great place to start the conversation. Um, I do think uh there is more of a sense right now of the world being on fire um yeah. and as I was reflecting over the weekend, you know thinking about um where we might take this conversation, it occurred to me that you know we're still in this post covid space, which I think is is contributing to a great extent um to this sense of uncertainty uh despite you know, for example, in the U S, despite the fact that, you know, the economic indicators are not, not that bad. Um, there's still that underlying sense of, uh, of, of fear and concern about, uh, where things are going. Uh, and of course what we see more broadly in terms of the geopolitical, um, space, uh, is, is in some ways a confirmation of that. So whether it's the heightened issues and tensions with, with China, um, the, um, the Very serious issues in the Middle East, uh, Russia-Ukraine. You know, it, it is happening on multiple fronts, and and this does feel different
2: it in does. terms
1: of the impact, right? And how to make sense of all of this. And uh, you know, maybe maybe that's something we should you know spend a little time thinking about um, today or talking about. How do we make sense of all of these uh, these risks that are not only playing out independently, but are connected to each other? right it's this um uh, interdependence of um global challenges right now that that is difficult to to navigate um i think in a kind of a unique way and part of that again is going back to you know being in this post covid environment and you know being in in a somewhat in a state of recovery globally right mm-hmm. um with huge impact on the global south and uh and, and, and this, this kind of questioning more broadly around U.S. leadership globally, yeah. and, and whether that's coming from the economic side or the political side, um, some real tests of that um, in new and different ways, and, and perhaps um, re, you know, kind of resurfacing some of the challenges that maybe we thought we had dealt with 20 years ago, particularly around terrorism and terrorist mm-hmm. financing, that are coming yeah. back in a big way.
0: Yeah, and I I definitely want to dive deeper into that as well. Yeah. So you mentioned COVID, which um, in some ways, it seems like yesterday. In other ways, it feels like it was a lifetime ago, like it's in the rearview mirror. Uh, Obviously, it changed the world, no question about it. But did it change any of the the global dynamics as far as international relations? I mean, did we have new allies, new adversaries, you know, Did the stage change at all, or are the actors the same, the roles the same, and it just kind of brought new things to light?
1: Um, I think it's both. So one thing that completely changed as a result of COVID, at least from my vantage point, is how we think about our supply chain dependencies. Um, I think it was really a shock when... The U.S. determined that it was going to be difficult to get protective gear out of China, for example, that Mm -hmm. we weren't going to be able to rely on certain kinds of imports uh, coming from um, from from the Chinese um, uh, government. You know, that that was, I think, a a serious wake up call in terms of understanding what that relationship really held um, Mm -hmm. for us and. Uh, This deeper conversation around dependencies on China, whether we're talking about, uh, you know, medical equipment and supplies or critical minerals, right? Kind of runs the gamut across many different areas that we might consider to be strategic. And that really forced um, a rethinking of this question around dependencies. So Mm -hmm. what's happening now is, in essence, again, from my perspective... Um, a bit of a global rewiring okay. around these relationships and how we think about trade, how we think about the flow of um, capital coming out of mm-hmm. the US and more broadly Western uh, allies, where that capital is going, what it's supporting, and what the risk profile looks like now for operating abroad, particularly in China. So this okay. is. This is causing a huge kind of rethinking. Um, And when I talk to U.S. manufacturers, for example, who have a big footprint in China, a lot of them have already moved to what they call the China plus one strategy. So they have a supply chain linked into China, but they're looking at that alternative so that um, if we're faced with another global shock or it just becomes too difficult to operate, and in some cases it already has become very difficult uh, to operate, that there are Uh, viable alternatives. Um, We've also seen a huge uh, decrease in the amount of foreign investment going into China. It's down massively over the last year or so. Um, So this this is an interesting question about how the markets are responding. And the fact that sometimes the markets respond whether the government does anything or not or just a signal a minor signal even from the government that there's a problem (laughs) may effectuate a huge shift and so this is the rewiring that you know Mm -hmm. that i'm talking about it it's happening because markets respond
0: to risk and so i like that you mentioned you know a lot of major manufacturers are adopting this kind of china plus one policy Mm -hmm. who is that plus one are you seeing some commonality there of where people are turning where business is going
1: that's a great question. I mean, it really depends on the sector. So I think um, for you know certain kinds of electronics, there are probably pivot strategies in Asia, um looking to Vietnam, looking to India, maybe to South Korea, um, other potential locations where um, the supply chain m- maybe doesn't need to go too far. Um, mm-hmm. In other cases, we might be looking at uh, you know emerging uh, supply chains and technologies that may ultimately get rooted elsewhere, whether that's um, looking at EV components, maybe coming out of uh, Mexico or uh, South America, um, the potential to move some supply chains home um, mm-hmm. uh, where that's possible. It's not always possible, not always ideal to do that. Um, so I think there are potential beneficiaries, both in Southeast Asia and even in our own hemisphere. Um, but it will be really dependent upon the particular kind of business. Um, I think one question is, um, becoming very clear, which is how to protect advanced technologies and the intellectual property associated with that. I mean, to the extent that we allowed us technology and IP to kind of filter into, um, the Chinese ecosystem, sometimes with, um, with rights and sometimes without, right? Sometimes it was just taken. I think I think that is gonna be um, a real point of contention going forward because the stakes are getting much, much higher.
0: Okay, and, and maybe we could use that as a launch pad today. You know, I know uh, everything going on in Israel is kind of front and center, but maybe we can start with China. I mean, frankly, the elephant in the room and then we'll come full circle here. Um, so I know earlier this year you wrote an article that was titled "How Xi Jinping's Policies Could Lead China to Economic Implosion." Uh, you talk about the Belt and Road Initiative, the you know Silk Road Two Point and, you know, just what they're trying to do to to really broaden their reach around the globe. And one of the things, you know, that that I had read about and I've researched as well before is you say that China went out over a trillion dollars of loans and they did so at commercial rates where we do a lot of the same thing, but we would use it as as aid or, or subsidized loans. Um, is that I mean, was that a smart move on their part? Because it, it it just seems like from the layman's perspective, they make these loans to sometimes these third world you know countries that that don't have a lot of structure and they've got to go in there knowing like, this is most likely going to default. And is that a, by design where they say, okay, now you owe us via your commodities or other strategies, you know, what's that look like? Is that working or is that not working?
1: Yeah. So, okay. So let's unpack this a bit. Yeah. This is, sure. um, you know the, the kind of key strategic question around the Belt and Road Initiative: Did mm-hmm. Beijing design this program to be one of debt dependency and debt trap? Um, was that part Was that part of the strategy um, versus this idea that you know they wanted to go in with quote unquote no strings attached? So. Yeah, we're going to lend you money, we're going to make it available quickly, we're not going to ask you to do environmental planning, we're not going to, uh, you know, ensure that there's local value, we'll bring in Chinese manufacturers, Chinese labor, which is what happened for a lot of these projects. Um, And, you know, hoping that that would be a way to extend their footprint. And uh, so in that latter case, it's more or less worked. Um, I think what they what they didn't anticipate was the massive economic slowdown as a result of COVID, right? Mm-hmm. Another China challenge yeah. that has made it impossible for a lot of these countries to um, service that that debt, and because the um, the uh, Chinese loans, not all of them, but a good chunk of them, are at market rates or at different rates right? they look different than the world bank loans and other multilateral development loans um they're also coming up as the first um uh, creditors to get paid back so Mm -hmm. uh, if they're agreeing to um to renegotiate these loans and in some cases uh that china has agreed to to renegotiate they're often doing it at market rates that are still above um you know, what would be coming from other uh, development type um, uh, sources. So I don't think that that the BRI was was specifically set up as a debt trap. Um, I, I just think it was bad planning on the yeah. part of, of Beijing. I mean, the BRI, in essence, I mean, people talk about it as a kind of this massive trillion dollar initiative. And, you know, even I've talked about it that way in, in some of my pieces. But if you look kind of, under the tent, what you see is um, a thousand different projects with many different players and in some ways a lack of centralized coordination. So it was almost like a lot of these Chinese um, entities were deputized to go out and do these deals. Um, but at the end of the day, there wasn't a lot of coordination. And so that's part of the problem. Like It's hard to de- define what this is or what what the impact was intended to be. Now, Mm -hmm. what Beijing has said uh, they wanted to do with this was create this global infrastructure investment strategy that would bring development to other parts of the world, um, kind of based on this Chinese model. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you look at, you know, whether it's achieved that that broader goal of being clean and green and transparent, which is all how they, you know, all words that they've used to describe it, it really hasn't Met that bar. Um, there, 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 are You know, there are some projects that have been successful, but a lot that really haven't. So, do they,
0: if end, I could okay. jump in, yeah. I mean, do Sorry. you think yeah. they really yeah. meant that? Because I, I feel like when everybody hears China, the last thing they're going to think is clean and green. You know, yeah. they think they might be productive. They're a powerhouse of exports, etc. But yeah. I don't think anyone said, oh, they, they play by all the same rules that we do. Um, I, I didn't even realize that that was in their language, that they were even trying to kind of market that, yeah uh, I assume that's just lip service. I mean, are they trying to do anything to kind of get on board with the green movement?
1: I think, I think it's been a useful narrative. Uh, you know, they've made some more recent commitments to funding, uh, green projects. Uh, they've made very recent commitments. They just had a summit. Um, in October actually, where they talked about um, putting in some mechanisms for uh, project integrity, project compliance, but these are coming late. I mean, we're, they're 10 years into it. And so, so no, I don't, I don't think it's been more than lip service, um, but it's been a, a convenient rhetoric, right. To be able to kind of create this narrative that there's um, you know, that there's this broader benefit to society. There's a broader, you know, a uh, uh, strategic objective that is in alignment with, um, you know, transparent, fully functioning infrastructure. But the the reality is something that looks very, very different.
0: Okay. Yeah. And what you mentioned like these, this, that it sounds like they kind of just throw it all at the wall and see what sticks approach that's been happening without a lot of centralization going on. What, what are maybe some of the biggest areas that they are investing in? Uh, regions or countries where most of that money has flowed?
1: Yeah, so uh, there's certainly a lot of it in Southeast Asia and uh, into Pakistan, for example. They've identified certain strategic corridors that have been of particular interest. Um, Mm. And they tend to coincide with where uh, China is looking for access to maritime routes or looking for overland uh, uh, accessibility uh, to more trade. Um, for example, so um, uh, routes into Europe. um, there are some corridors um, and projects in Africa that are strategic of in terms of um, mining, you know extraction of critical minerals or infrastructure to support new rail lines um, and and the like. So um, so there there's definitely a a more strategic play around some of it. But then when you look at the corridors and how the projects are, are, are structured and moving along. I'm not sure that they're, you know, kind of delivering the full, uh, strategic value. You know, we have a lot of projects, for example, um, in Africa, there's, there's the Kenya, uh, Nai- Nairobi, um, uh, um uh, rail line, um, freight okay. rail line that, you know, just, it, you know, is hardly used. It really isn't delivering. Mm-hmm. Um, so some of these grand projects that were part of the initial, Uh, pitch have kind of made way now to smaller projects that may be in the same corridors, but aren't as, you know, um, as, as encompassing or as, as, as large. So I I do think we're going to see a a movement towards smaller projects and probably more strategic, maybe focus more on digital um, infrastructure. So that's a big thing. So expansion of 5g networks, Um, surveillance equipment, uh, communications, so uh, helping governments kind of um, improve that um, IT connectivity will probably be front and center. And then, uh, yeah.
0: Yeah. So some of those areas that you mentioned that that China's making a push for development and those governments or whoever's in power there, are they negotiating with China? Are they entertaining other offers? you know, is is Germany, is America, is Britain coming in saying, hey, we'll develop the rail line, or we'll build some infrastructure? Or is China the only one kind of going into some of these maybe niche areas? And are, do they have so much power where those governments are saying, okay, China wants to work with us, whatever you guys want, you got it. Um, you know, how much kind of back and forth is there? And are we, you know, the Western world, are we involved?
1: Yeah, great question. So I would say for the first seven or eight years of the VRI, it was pretty much a China only game. It's only Mm -hmm. in the last few years that the dynamics have started to shift with the U.S. taking um, this issue a bit more seriously um, Mm -hmm. in terms of providing a credible alternative. I mean, I should say that the U.S. is still investing more and providing more development, aid and engagement than any other country in the world. Um, but it's not necessarily focused on the kinds of projects, the infrastructure projects that um, China has has um, has zeroed in on as part of the Belt and Road Initiative. But mm-hmm. more recently, the U.S. has uh, taken a taken a taken a turn in terms of its its approach. It started under the Trump administration and it's continued under the Biden administration. Um, one major uh, change was the setup of the um, new U.S. Development Finance Corporation. Okay. which uh, is uh, uh, an interesting agency. They actually have um, equity capacity. So not only can they provide financing, but they can actually invest in projects, um, make equity investments in infrastructure um, projects throughout the world. So this is a, a huge shift. Uh, it doesn't compare to what China is investing, but it's a starting point. And it's meant mm-hmm. to serve as leverage to bring more Western capital more U.S. capital into private—that is, into yep. infrastructure projects throughout the world. So that was a huge shift that uh, came into effect around 2019 or so. And then we've been doing a lot more with Exxon Bank to try to um, push um, certain kinds of U.S. manufacturing and supply chains that have um, uh, impact internationally and can support, um, you know, broader engagement around advanced technologies and the like. Um, but I would say. You know, we're just getting started on this. Biden recently announced the um, Global Partnership for Infrastructure Investment. Um, mm-hmm. That is a multilateral, meant to be a multilateral engagement strategy with Europe and other allies um, to, um, to put uh, more funds into strategic corridors, um, one of which is in the Middle East. Yeah. Uh, although I think that, you know, may be a challenge in the near term. Yeah. Um, but um, so so we're starting to do that. I think a lot of countries would say, sure, if there was a credible alternative to Chinese funds, we we would consider it. Um, mm-hmm. It's always better to have more options. But I think the ground game for the US uh, in this space, it, it, it has been um, pretty, you know, pretty weak.
0: So, OK, OK. Then now it's good to know yeah. in, in that the same article I had mentioned a moment ago, um, I just want to steal a, a quote from you real quick. You said that Russia, which every day inches closer to becoming a failed state, is currently cha- China's largest ally. And certainly Iran, Syria, Venezuela, and North Korea, and Cuba would love to continue to align with China. But all of those countries combined have a GDP less than that of the Netherlands. So, it I mean, it seems like China's got the, these grandiose initiatives. You know, they're they're the other superpower opposite the U.S., Um, but I mean, do they have, they, it seems like they don't really have the connections of the allies that America has. And then most of the business done, you know, for China is, is with us, with the U S. So I don't think that they're going to ever be able to kind of like decouple and say, Hey, we built our own thing over here. We're now independent of the U S in any way. Um, is that, I mean, is that a problem for China? I mean, would you say like, if we had to just compare the two countries, Is that where we maybe have a leg up on them as more developed allies? Or what's maybe your take on that?
1: Yeah. So I'm really glad you asked that question because I I do think it's it's worth it to take a step back to look at this question of alliances Mm -hmm. and exactly what we're facing right now. Um, No doubt the U.S. has strong alliance and connectivity to Europe, um, certainly within North America and with strategic partners in, in Asia as well um southeast asia in particular where they're quite concerned about the um the the growing um, influence and potential threat of of china so uh china's alliances look a bit different um for sure we can count russia in that category although you know as i've written uh, if we look at what's happening in russia um the trajectory is not good um certainly not over the long term, but even in the midterm. So uh, where does that leave China? I mean, India is not um, not, not a, a strong ally of China. And uh, what China has built through the Belt and Road Initiative, for example, is mostly engagement with the Global South. So that's really where they've put a lot of their, their focus. And that's why you see them heavily um, engaging through BRICS, um, the BRICS alliance. It's why uh, you know they had had a big summit um, in Beijing last last month, celebrating 10 years of the BRI because it brought you know more than 110 countries um, to Beijing. So they're um, they're really focusing on that space and trying to uh, to develop it. And there are a lot of strategic reasons why they want to do that. They were also hoping that they were going to peel Europe away from the U.S. Right. And yeah. and I would say pre COVID they were probably um making a lot more progress than than um than we would have liked. I think that that dynamic has generally shifted in Europe. They're seeing the uh, threat with China in a slightly different way. So uh and of course NATO's response um to to Russia was another um kind of pushback against China, saying, Well, if we can split the US and Europe, um that's very strategic for our um, for our expansion. So I think China is facing some headwinds in terms of its ability to win fl- friends and influence people, if I may say, yeah. uh, because there is, you know, I-, I think growing concern about how they're operating and where they're operating. Okay. Um, but yeah.
0: Yep. And yeah. so maybe just to kind of pivot a little bit, still in the, in the same area, talking about China, um, just a couple of weeks ago, and I'm sure you probably saw in 60 Minutes, they had the five eyes. Uh, which were the intelligence directors from the U.S. and our English-speaking allies. And so the FBI director, Chris Wray, said, and I'm quoting here, the People's Republic of China represents the defining threat of this generation. And then he went on to mention that there's roughly 2,000 active investigations relating to Chinese spying and theft of information here in America. So... I I mean, is that some, would all kind of countries say, you know, we're all doing the same thing and are we doing the same thing China's doing to us, are we doing it to them and we don't hear about it? Like, is it a level playing field or is this something that's like a grave concern that we're losing?
1: Yeah. uh, Great. Another great question. Um, I think there's a tremendous amount of Chinese influence in this country that we're just starting to understand. Uh, and certainly Chris Ray was somebody who would have a, a, you know, a, a deep and, and profound uh, view on that and the implications of it. But, you know, whether we're talking about uh, it, the influence through academic uh, institutions where we have a lot of Chinese uh, engagement and have for years, right, at the mm-hmm. research level, but also students um, who've been coming for a long time, Um uh, and uh and and some of the 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 uh, the, the loopholes that have um been made clear and you know the fact that we've just we've got a we've got a, a real challenge there um with um, with with the, with these academic relationships, that soft power, if you will, um mm-hmm. that has been a funnel, right, to move. A lot of innovation and ideas um, back to the Chinese mainland. I'm not sure we have the equivalent situation in <laughs> in China, um, where you know, because the U.S. footprint there looks a lot different, right? How um, so? I think, yeah. So we don't have um, you know the number of students going over to China. Um, we're not as interested in their technology base. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, with some exceptions, maybe in the AI space, um, we continue to lead on most technology. And research that may change over time, but, you know, we still have a lot that is of interest to the Chinese um, uh, establishment and, and to their economic growth and trajectory. So so that that playing field does not look kind of equivalent. Um, if we're talking about, you know, more around the national intelligence space and our ability to, um, you know, to have effective means of gaining intelligence uh, in China versus their ability to gain it here. I don't feel like I'm the best judge of that. I think, you know, there's a big game there, (laughs) which uh, involves, you know, everybody. Uh, And we're pretty good on surveillance and so are they. Um, But that's not unlike what we faced, you know, throughout the Cold War. um, Yeah
0: it just kind of raised everybody's eyes no pun intended when we had a gigantic balloon literally go all the way across the country yeah and i was like how are we? i mean th- yeah, i think yeah. a lot of people were like why is this so okay yeah. that we literally let it go from one side to the other without really being worried uh and then yeah. said okay now we'll take it down yeah but um
1: it, yeah, yeah that was not okay <laughs> yeah, and I
0: think yeah. that's what most people would yeah. conclude, which is strange yeah. to me. But yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Nevertheless, kind of from like an, an economic standpoint, I, I know that's a little more uh, in your wheelhouse. So my understanding, after you know President Mao Zedong passed away in, in 1976, they started their open door policy, and Chinese growth just exploded and, and did so for decades. And now they have what a lot of people call this state run capitalism. Mm -hmm. where in some respects, they're, they're kind of like us having some capitalist elements, but they have so much control, you know, as, you know, a communist party does. Do you think that gives them an advantage of sort? Because I know lots of times people will say about America, you know, we're the land of the free, the capitalists, we're just this, this super machine that can't be stopped. However, we're constantly looking like at four year intervals of, there's another election coming and then there's another election right around the corner and we have these little snippets that we keep pursuing um where a a putin or a xi jinping can say i'll look at the next 30 years because i'm gonna call the shots you would just think that that gives them so much more of an advantage from a planning perspective than kind of like our up and down a bit of a roller coaster of republican democrat um you know from and I know this is another huge question, but from just like a, a sy- system uh, standpoint, yeah. do they have an advantage there, or is that just kind of a failed thought
1: yeah um, so I think the short answer is uh, it depends uh, the 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 existence of this sort of centralized planning mechanism and the ability to take the long uh, the long view, right, because mm-hmm. there's uh, less turmoil and churn within their political system um, and a lot more top down engagement and infiltration right, of the Chinese Communist Party into state owned enterprises, which by design are an extension <laughs> of, the, of the government, but also into their quote unquote private sector, which really doesn't look a whole lot like or looks less and less like our private sector um, mm-hmm. because of the engagement of the state. Um, yes, all of this allows them to turn the the machine um in ways that uh are more coordinated and uh can help them situate i think more in some ways more effectively over the long term um but there's also a limit on that and in some ways i think we're seeing we're seeing that limitation um and and it, and it, it's it's a question about when that centralized uh system and that top-down approach simply becomes too heavy and starts to send the wrong messages or makes it too difficult to to operate. That's what we're seeing, I think, in the early stages right now with, um, with U.S. businesses operating in China and other, uh, let's say, Western interests that are finding it more and more difficult to operate because they can't conduct due diligence anymore um, or not without the potential to be pulled in right or pushed mm-hmm. out of the country um the um the anti-espionage laws and the national intelligence laws uh, you know this framework of um of legality uh essentially deputizes every uh, chinese individual and company operating outside of china um to be um a gatherer of intelligence and information that, um, that if it has national security implications, needs to be shared with the Chinese government. Mm-hmm. Uh, so th- there, there's a lot going on um, with the kind of legal and regulatory space that's making it much more difficult for um, businesses to operate. So it's part of this kind of top-down approach, but it's having a massive impact in terms of capital, right? And whether um, it's worth the risk to push new capital into a place like uh, China. So even with the best laid plans, if the market is responding in a way that is um, counterintuitive to what China seeks to build, right? Mm -hmm. Which is to drive this export market as long as they can and make the shift to a consumption orientation, build up the services sector, build up higher value in manufacturing. um, None of that is uh, going to happen as quickly if the base right of the economy uh, uh, shrinks, yeah. So you know, so so I think you can argue that right right now. I know we're at talking about this at a you know not at a highly detailed level, but the uh, you know if they're killing off the golden goose as a result of this kind of top-down uh, pressure on the system. Um, And making it difficult for the market to manage those risks, uh,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: then um, then then, you know they're they're undermining their own objective. So
2: it's interesting.
1: Yeah. So I do think there's some limitation around this idea that you know you can have the best laid plans and they're all going to come to fruition. No, because you can't control the market dynamics. I mean that's. Because True. markets act as it, as markets do. Now, on the other hand, you have the U.S. where you know we go through this churn and every four years we have the potential for a big shift in our policies and whatnot. Mm-hmm. That is also becoming increasingly hard for us to manage because going back to this issue of all these risks that are happening right now, and all these challenges, and they're all related – uh whether we're talking about climate change or clean energy transition uh or geopolitical challenges in the middle east and the implications um you know all of this becomes uh difficult for uh markets to address uh in a meaningful way over the long term
2: yeah. and the
1: us of course has to make important decisions about um do we want to go down the road of having more industrial policy right like the yeah. chips act it's yeah. a huge step towards uh, towards having industrial policy in a, in a in a way that we you know have not had in a very long time. Um, do we need more of the you know kind of uh, Manhattan um, project type initiatives that give us that longer term view to get to technologies that are really going to be game changing? Um, yeah. These are the kinds of questions that I think we're facing, along with you know, do we want to put more restrictions on capital flow? Leaving the U.S. so that it's not inadvertently funding our uh, our you know our strategic competitors or our enemies, right? In in the development of their military capability, I like, think sure. we have a longer term view around that. We probably do. So yeah. coming to terms with that in a system where we have so much churn is also incredibly challenging. <laughs>
0: yeah, it's it's so interesting. Some different ways to look at it because here in the states, you know, you hear about things that are, you know, quote unquote, business unfriendly, or, you know, your regulations and environmental concerns and all these different kind of rules you have to play by. But from what I'm hearing from you, it's like in China, they also have those same hurdles, they're just different in that it's the data collection and the cooperation with the government and so forth um, that can make it a little tricky. Uh, so definitely very interesting. The last point I wanted to ask you about was on that kind of long-term short-term vision. So I think most people would see right now in America it just seems so polarizing that, you know, we had Trump and you had half the country saying, I'll do anything that's not Trump. And then you had Biden saying, I'm going to undo everything that Trump did and start anew. And now you certainly have, you know, the Republicans coming in for the next election saying, OK, we're going to do the exact opposite of Biden. It just seems like we're going like the pendulum's swinging all the way from one side to the other. Uh, is it do you think that's really happening, or is there a lot of middle ground that just does not get addressed
2: like so has Biden
0: I, carried over trump policies yeah. with a smile on his face that we haven't seen
1: exactly exactly i you know I think that's a that's a very astute question because some of this is rhetoric right, and some mm-hmm. of it is uh, reality in terms of the shifts on policy so in the in the economic space, when we're talking about measures for economic security, economic resilience, and even national security, the playbook is somewhat finite. And Mm -hmm. that's where we see, I think, a little bit less play, even if the rhetoric looks a little bit different. uh, You know, for example, are we likely to have a Republican administration coming in in 2024 that would um, entirely remove us from Ukraine and uh, from uh, supporting Israel? Uh, that's unlikely in my view, um mm-hmm. could we see some tweaks in that policy? Yeah, we might um mm-hmm. so that so that that stands in contrast to some of the other issues um I guess you know more on the kind of societal front where we're talking about. You know uh, how it, an agenda is perceived around um, LGBTQ or mm-hmm. abortion or you know some of the other domestic issues where there's such a difference in yeah. terms of the approach. So I, I really think it, it 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 matters in terms of what issues we're talking about and whether. There's r- rhetoric around that or whether it's real in terms of those positions being so diametrically opposed across our two, you know, our two party system. But, you know, a, you made a you made a great um, example, of, you know, Biden coming in and, and really not changing uh, some of the core things that Trump did, including some of the tariffs on China and including the immigration uh, yeah. um policies at the border. I mean, they're starting to change, but they, they, they didn't for a long time. And there was a really good reason why they didn't because some of them actually work.
0: Yeah. I I think that was one of the staples of Trump's administration is like right out the gates. He, without saying so almost kind of declared this trade war on China. So most of the, like those tariffs and those things that, um, hit, you know, it hit the markets kind of hard initially. Um, and then we, we got adjusted to it. it. So most of those are still in effect like those haven't been yeah, done A good yeah. a
1: good number of them are, you know. And mm-hmm. then of course Biden has taken it a step further with uh, you know an executive order limiting outbound investment to China around certain technologies. Um uh, you know we've uh we passed the chips act um, which mm-hmm. has had huge implications for China. So He's actually built around. What's some around, common
0: ground? Yeah, absolutely. Don't you don't hear more yeah. about that. But with the yeah. border, and again, there's there's rhetoric to get involved there. But it seems so much like Trump said we're just putting up a wall, and then Biden said we're tearing the wall down. And <laughs> I don't know, you know, no, how that yeah. kind of unfolded. I mean, it seems in some respects that that is the case. Yeah. But.
1: Yeah. So I mean, it's interesting that the you know. I mean, I think there's still some money being spent on, on, on the wall, if I understand correctly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I Biden is really struggling. The immigration numbers are, are way, way up, um, particularly the illegal uh, yeah. numbers. And that having uh, worked on the border issues now for more than two decades, um, it's absolutely befuddling to me that we can't come to an agreement. I think there is a tremendous amount of um, middle ground on uh, securing the border. But, it's, but the rhetoric around that is not um, politically convenient, right? It's just mm-hmm. become so difficult to move out of the narrative and move into the kinds of solutions that we need. Um, I think most people would, would agree that we need to have a secure border. Sure. And there are lots of ways that we can do that, but we need to have a secure border and we need it now. Yeah. Uh, having said that, we also need a sane policy on immigration. Because one of the reasons why we're continuing to have good economic Vibrancy in this country is because we've had um, pretty solid immigration and it's helped offset our low birth rates. Yeah. Unlike China, where they have a huge demographic issue, uh, yeah. not unlike Japan in some ways. Yeah. Um, and uh, they're going to face a huge headwind around that. So, immigration is ab- absolutely essential to the economic model in this country. And we're really not having an honest conversation about that. Uh, and that's a shame uh, yeah. because we need to, we really need to.
0: Yeah. And that was one of the things in my book I talked a lot about was kind of these population dynamics and how, you know, aging and and you're getting to see the precursor in Japan and how that's going to affect us in China, China on a much bigger scale, just by virtue of how large they are. But immigration has always seemed to be a bit of our, you know, our secret weapon going back from what you mentioned earlier, the Manhattan Project and, and you know, so many of those people, they were not born here in America. And then they came here and developed all this technology for our benefit. Right.
1: Absolutely. So, yeah. And and, and and I'm going to say something, and it may may sound a little controversial, but I'm going to say it anyway, because I, I think we need to not only completely revisit the, the question of immigration and what it means to the economic security and resilience of this country, but we need to look at what's happening in China right now with their huge um, youth unemployment numbers. We're talking over 20% of, um, of Chinese youth are, um, for the most part, educated and unemployed. That's a recipe for disaster for China if they can't figure out a way to employ these folks. But a lot wow. of them are trained in STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math. We desperately need um, these types of skills. And if we are smart, we'd be thinking about ways to attract the best and brightest talent from all over the world to come to this country and help us build the systems that we need for the future. Yeah. Um, and I'm not saying we take away U.S. jobs in the process. We have plenty. <laughs> so yeah. we need to really think more strategically about that. I mean, there couldn't be a worse time to have a conversation about bringing more Chinese um, you know, young graduates and students to this country. But we may <laughs> look back at this as a missed opportunity if we don't think more strategically about how to capture talent
0: yeah yeah that's such a strange dynamic that it seems like they have what we need you know being you know trained young talent and we have the jobs and then vice versa they've got the trained young talent but they obviously don't have the jobs for them Um, it seems like a, a perfect marriage aside from all the other things that we've discussed so far Yep. So well, we'll see what the future holds there. But yeah. I, I know you're busy and I really want to get some of your insights on, you know, the the latest news, of course, what's going on in Israel. Um, so just a, by way of quick introduction. So I had recently read, according to the UN, the unemployment rate in Gaza is 47 percent and over 80 percent of Gaza lives in poverty, yet Hamas, which runs Gaza, uh, and has ruled since 2007, without any elections or anything, they have an alleged military budget of about $100 million to $350 million annually. And our State Department said that Iran provides about $100 million to Hamas. Uh, and, and this is another little bit of my research. So in an interview that was on Russia Today TV, a Hamas official, Ali Baraka, he said and i quote first and foremost it is iran that is giving us money and weapons can you just kind of give us some context here of how hamas came to be and they seem to have this stranglehold here and my biggest fear from just what i see is the the public relations that and that's kind of my fear for israel is they're just bombarding gaza and i think a lot of the interm- international community sees it as you know kind of big Israel going into this little area, blowing them off the map, which I think plays to Hamas's benefit that they can just show this footage of possibly civilians or just property being destroyed at the hands of Israel. There's so many layers to this, but um, maybe we can start with kind of the finances of it all. Like what is going on over there?
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, let's let's definitely talk about the 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 money. Um, it, it's absolutely the case that a good chunk of the um, military capability um, that Hamas has has uh, developed over the last, you know, I guess, ten to fifteen years is a result of uh, funds from Iran. Absolutely. So there's no way to really manage the Hamas threat without um, figuring out what we do about Iran and that flow of funds. Um, so that stands in contrast to other funding that Hamas has received. Um, actually, quite a bit has come from Qatar, for example. Um, but a lot of it has been coordinated um, with both Israel and, and the U.S. and ostensibly has gone in for humanitarian purposes. The, the problem is that it's difficult to create the barriers around where that money actually ends up. I mean, and, and in my view, almost impossible to say that money or March for humanitarian funding is only going for humanitarian purposes. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, um, we don't have that, what I would call the integrity corridor to really be able to track that, yeah. uh, that money. And so that, that's certainly part of the problem. Um, and you know, that's a, that's a, it's a catch 22 for the, um, for the international community, for those who want to be sure that, um, you know, the citizens of Ga- Gaza actually have what, you know, what they need. It's a terrible situation there.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but being able to do that without, um, you know, uh, enriching Hamas is difficult. And and actually, Hamas has done a pretty good job of setting up a taxation structure as well around around um, supplies that have come in to Gaza yeah. over the years. So that that has also generated um, funding for them. And then we know that they've, to some extent, used um, crypto um crypto mechanisms as well. So, um, there's, you know, there's cold, hard cash coming in, but there are also other ways that they leverage, um, you know, decentralized finance and, yep. um, and crypto. So, so it's, it's a somewhat complicated picture, um, uh, and, uh, figuring out how to, you know, kind of, uh, deal with the terrorist threat, but, um, but limit the, um, the, 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 civilian implications as you've, you know, as you've, you've, you've mentioned is, is really difficult. And, mm-hmm. uh, it, it's such a constrained area and, and such a difficult area to, to be able to, you know, to fight within. I mean, there's nothing worse than urban warfare. Yeah. Right. It's just, there's so yeah, many even worse is
0: in, in tunnels, which is yes. Which yeah. Uh, so,
1: yeah. So it's, it's really, um, kind of a perfect storm of, of, Of bad news for everybody. Um, For those who are still stuck in Gaza, and those who have to go in and fight.
0: And so, Um, with that in mind, with a a perfect storm for everybody, you know, which is the the last thing that you ever want to enter. I feel like this is a story that's now as old as time for us, where you have these kind of altruistic nations like the U.S. saying, "Okay, we'll help out. Here's weapons. Here's aid. Here's money." And then in these different pockets of the world, it seems to be the corrupt and the bad guys say, okay, great. You know, thank you. And they take it all. And now it's like, we're fighting ourselves. Um, I I mean, I, I know this is another big question, but do you put an end to that? I mean, is there a time where it's like, okay, as hard as it seems, you know, everybody turns to America, what should we do? You know, do we ever just kind of say, you know, we're not getting involved?
1: Yeah, really good question. Uh I think there's a legitimate question as to how many of these fronts we can fight at any given time. Um that's certainly mm-hmm. a concern. Um uh, I think we have to be more mindful of the the framework in which we go into these um conflicts and how how we get them resolved. Um uh, you know, one thing that's very clear is that as if we compromise in terms of uh the question around human rights, human dignity, um we're in trouble i re- i really feel that way um that we we really we we need to have a little more consistency in terms of that f- that values framework of uh, of human rights and how we how we protect that and that that's challenging right mm-hmm. because what's happening right now in gaza um and a lot of innocent um folks who are you know con- ca- caught in the crosshairs um it's proving to be very difficult uh to you know, to maintain any semblance of humanitarian engagement right now. Um, And that's horrible. And I think, you know, Biden's trying to do that by, you know, uh, trying to slow down to some extent the conflict. But on the Mm -hmm. other hand, that feels like it's at odds right now with the idea that Israel should defend itself and take the steps necessary. And so these kinds of conflicts, you know, across policies are going to become more and more challenging for us. And the rest of the world is watching they're yeah. watching. And they sure. want to know, does the US think that a life in Gaza is as important as a life elsewhere? And we have to, we have to be honest about how we're, you know, how, how, how presumably the answer to that is yes. So mm. how do we make sure um, that we do as much as we can to solve these conflicts in the right way without ceding to um, authoritarian interests who are trying to upend uh, democratic rules and norms—that is happening. It's yeah. happening, uh, and a lot of that, you know, a lot, a lot of the false reporting that we've seen come out of Gaza. I mean, that—that's front and center, right, in yep. terms of erosion of our role. But you know, we have to make sure that we're doing everything that we can from a foreign policy perspective to maintain the the, the values framework around what we're around what we're doing.
0: Yeah, and, and it seems like kind of the the shift in the modern era are these proxy wars where. Yeah. And it seems like they, they kind of have the playbook worked out of like, okay, we can start these little conflicts and they can be relatively speaking small, but then we yeah. get the biggest power in the world, America, almost directly involved within a yeah. week. And and now here it is, this, this big yeah. debate. So, yeah. you know, was- I, I think Iran, you know, they, they got it down pat of how to kind of fund these different little pockets and, and set up these little proxy wars. So I think that's kind of another huge question, if maybe you can give us some insight to, is my understanding is under the Obama administration, you know, we more or less gave $150 billion or freed up $150 billion of assets to Iran. And there was, you know, the report that they gave, you know, $1.7 billion in actual cash, uh, because we didn't have the banking connections. So it was actually done via cash, which seemed very odd. All that happens, I think everybody just takes a step back and says, like, that sounds insane. Like, we knew how bad the Iranian government was for, you know, a lot of our allies and ourselves. Yeah. Why then, like, why did we do that? What yeah. was the rationale?
1: Yeah. Well, I think, I think that was, um, that uh, certainly in retrospect proved to be a, a very bad, uh, move. But even before that, I wouldn't <laughs> argue that, you know, we shouldn't be, um, We shouldn't we shouldn't be working with 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 terrorist states in that way. I think the idea was, well, we you know, there's a way that we can support, uh, you know, some humanitarian interests or free up some funding here and there. And that might give us a little bit of negotiation room. Uh, But I I think at the end of the day, this question around Iran and their financing is absolutely critical. We just we we're going to have to do a better job (laughs) Uh, Mm of. Of of, um, understanding where the money is going, um, how it's being derived, uh, blasting open the financial opacity around how these uh, regimes and terrorist organizations are continuing to get funded and just um, stop the funding. We have to do that. Um, Without the funding, uh, Hamas becomes... uh, not irrelevant, but much less dangerous. You know, disrupting Hamas is about um, disrupting the flow of funds from Iran. We have to address that. And if we don't, then we're not getting anywhere. So, um, you know, our our Iran policy has been somewhat chaotic, to say the least, over the last 10 years. I think it's time to just take a hard look at it. And we need to start leading again, when it comes to uh, strategies for countering terror finance, we have to put that back on the agenda, like we did after 9-11, um, there are new ways and new mechanisms that, um, that money is flowing through the financial system. Unfortunately, in some cases we are enabling that, um, mm-hmm. by the opacity in our systems. And we, and that would be a huge step forward in dealing with rogue regimes. If we could, um, if we could solve that issue.
0: So that to put you on the hot seat here, maybe as we kind of <laughs> near a conclusion, if you're sitting in the Oval Office right now and, and that's objective number one for you is to cut off their funding, make it harder, how do you do it? What do you do
1: yeah uh, so you, you you go after all of the formal and um, informal networks and ways that uh, money moves through the system so um, there are there are actually some very um, uh, very straightforward things that can be done. For example, we could get much more um, activity underway around beneficial ownership. So understanding the natural persons behind uh, offshore accounts, behind corporations, shell corporations, making sure that we understand that wherever Iran, for example, has connectivity through its proxies into offshore uh, banking, into Companies that are serving as conduits, as facilitators, that we just blast all of that wide open.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so that would be a really important thing <laughs> to do. Um, we need to go much uh, more in depth around around um, the crypto threats and understanding the connectivity between Iran and other regimes and how uh, money is flowing through um, throwing flowing through exchanges and mixers and um, and through through crypto finance. So that's another thing we can do. Uh, and then you know we really just need to look at other sources of funding for the Iranian regime that can be cut off. Um, this is tricky because again we have you know millions and millions of people in Iran um, who you know we 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 we're trying to target the regime. We're not trying to target the people. You know, mm-hmm. um, so that, that's difficult. We have to be careful about how we do it, but there are more um there are more um actions that we could take take with respect to Iranian sanctions and their um key revenue sources including oil
0: yeah yeah and that that's what i was going to yeah. bring up it seems like yeah. you know they these terrorist groups these nefarious actors they have you know drug trades they have other things like that that they pursue kind of organically, I guess you could say. Um, But then the other big, more legitimate one that seems to be the common thread through almost all of our adversaries is is the strength in oil. And um, I don't know, I mean, if that goes away, if we truly get energy independent, most of the developed world does, I don't know if that cuts them off at the knees, or if they have kind of some sort of plan B ready to go behind that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a it's certainly a long term play. um, And you know, being able to have a transformation in terms of, you know, our energy policy and and how we engage with certain parts of the world because we no longer have that dependency mm-hmm. on oil is huge. That is a massive shift. Yeah. Uh, now, it's not happening anytime soon, but do we need to be working towards that? Without question, this this shift should be coming as quickly as possible, recognizing that, you know, that we're not talking about a, a world where we don't have a carbon you know, there's not some level of a carbon footprint. There's going to be a reliance on petroleum, you know, for a very long time to come. But we can significantly reduce it in a way that would have, you know, huge implications for foreign policy. It's just not a solution r- right now. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, but we do have levers, right, um, where yeah. we can crack down even more. Um, but going back to this question around alliances and and, and axes, you know, as long as, um, you know, Russians and 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 the Chinese and others are willing to purchase um uh oil from rogue regimes we're going to have a challenge yeah so we're going to have to be more vigilant about it there's a sure. lot of evasion going on
0: yeah yeah there's there's yeah. so much to to unpack yeah. in this i feel like this could be yeah. a 3 hour conversation <laughs> <Yeah. clears throat> excuse me but um i just i know i know we're getting short on time here is there anything that maybe you'd like to leave our listeners with uh, of just kind of this outlook here. I mean, is are we at a point in time where it's like you, you shouldn't be able to sleep at night? You know, are, are we worried about the future? Or can we look at the, you know, the glass is half full and and there's more peace than evil and get excited about the future? You know, maybe just kind of like some closing comments on, on what you're yeah. hoping to see or what you would recommend.
1: So I think, I think there's a level of vi- vigilance now required of citizens in this country that perhaps we haven't felt in a long time. Um, And it it is important that we kind of step up to that challenge. Uh, And I I don't mean it in the sense that, you know, uh, one needs to understand all the global dynamics um, in great detail, but that it's important to make sure that our country is running in the best possible way. And that's where I think the citizen engagement could really um, could really step up, and by that I mean uh, taking part in a political process, mm-hmm. uh, thinking through what uh, what needs to happen locally, as well as at the state level and nationally. The stronger our democratic uh, processes and framework and economy, uh, our foreign policy will be. The two are connected. And that's what's really come home for me over the last few years, that we can't really think about foreign policy in a vacuum. Not that we ever could, but even it's even more challenging now, right? And more dangerous if we don't understand mm-hmm. that the the health of our democracy and our systems is the single most important thing for us uh, uh, in, in terms of our foreign policy, yeah. um, because it's how we're perceived. It's the model that we're projecting to the world. It's our ability to have economic power projection uh, where we want it, when we want it. It's the strength of the U.S. dollar. It's all based on a set of democratic rules and norms and engagement and market uh, activity that um, we've been pretty successful in terms of exporting uh, globally. But we're getting to a point where we're going to need to rethink some of that in terms of how much benefit it's providing to the rest of the world. So that's one thing. Yeah. But number two, it requires us to double down to make sure that um, that our country is in as strong a position as we can be. And that's why what's happening on Capitol Hill uh, is so problematic right now, mm-hmm. uh, because it's sending a different message uh, to the world. So yeah. I think as Americans, we need to rally a bit more, find the common ground and figure out a path forward uh, where uh, we can work on our own economic resilience, but also um, ensure that... Um, you know, our global leadership is leading to economic resilience and and, um, instability elsewhere.
0: Yeah, I think I'm in agreement. I think you hit the nail on the head there. And I feel like we do ourselves an injustice as a country where we don't always showcase our best to the world. When we can come up with incredible technology or innovation or a great conversation that maybe gets some time a day and then you know, you have a, a meme of the president tripped on a curb, and and they want to broadcast it a billion times over, and it's like, yeah. you know, it's nonsense. Yeah, <laughs> it's almost like if you had your yeah. your Facebook profile, would you show your worst moment or your silliest act? But as a country, it seems to be like that's like what we want to do to ourselves. Yeah. So it, yeah, it can be frustrating. Yeah. yeah. But um, thank you so much for the time, Elaine. I know we we covered a lot of ground here. Um, Hopefully, everybody had some takeaways here, and we'll certainly dig a little bit deeper and get more informed on these issues Um, because, you know, what a time it is to be alive.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Brian, thanks so much for the opportunity to join you. Um, I really enjoyed it.
0: My pleasure. And everyone, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Kaderna podcast. I'm Brian Kaderna. Today, we had the pleasure of speaking with Elaine Zensky. We'll put in the show notes where you can follow some of her research. And uh, please keep on tuning in and leave us a review wherever it is you're listening or watching. Until next time, be well.
2: This podcast is intended for the general public and for informational purposes only. The show does not provide any recommendations or investment advice regarding any specific account type, service, strategy, or product, or to otherwise act in any fiduciary or other capacity. Please contact a financial professional for guidance and information that is specific to your situation. Brian Coderna does not provide tax or legal advice. Please contact your accountant or legal advisor to discuss your situation. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by Park Avenue Securities, Guardian, or Coderna Financial Team, and opinions stated are their own. All investments contain risk and may lose value. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. References to specific securities, asset classes, and financial markets are for illustrative purposes only and do not constitute a solicitation, offer, or recommendation to purchase or sell a security. Brian Coderna is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS, OSJ, 300 Broad Acres Drive, Suite 175, Bloomfield, New Jersey, 07003, phone number 973-244-4420. Securities, products, and advisory services offered through PAS, member FINRA, SIPC. Financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Derna Financial Team is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. California insurance license number 0K04194.